We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Today, we're going to discuss the topic of homeopathy. Homeopathy is a treatment based on the use of highly diluted substances, which practitioners claim at least can cause the body to heal itself. Since all people are unique, homeopathic medicines are prescribed to treat individuals. Homeopathy is a system of natural medicine introduced and developed by a German physician, Samuel Hahnemann, in the end of the 18th century. And our guest, Pam Acker, will discuss him at length. Some major laws or principles of homeopathy include like cures like. Like things cure like things. Known as the law of similars, Homeopathy actually derives its name from the Greek homeo, similar, and pathos, suffering. A substance that can produce disease in a healthy person is used to elicit a healing response in someone presenting with a similar disease. Another principle of homeopathy. The great, <laughs> this one I'm still trying to figure out, to be honest with you. The greater the dilution, the greater its potency. Let that sort of get in your brain there for a while. The greater the dilution, the greater the power. Known as the law of infinitesimal dose. This refers to the infinitesimal doses of medicine given as well as to the repetition of dose only when necessary. Drugs given individuals and material doses frequently cause side effects or adverse reactions. To cur curtail this problem, the homeopath administers the smallest possible dose so as to maximize beneficial effects and minimize, minimize side effects. That's at least what they say. Another principle of homeopathy is the potentized remedy. Homeopathic remedies, though made from natural substances such as plants and other things, are manufactured unlike any other medicine. Through a process of serial dilution, one after the other, a very dilute extract is made. With every step of dilution, the remedy is vigorously shaken, or succussed as they, they call it, shaken violently. It's designed to, again, think about this when, when I read this. This shaking violently is designed to arouse the dynamic nature of the medicine. The dynamic nature to arouse it. To affect the vital force. A similarly energetic homeopathic remedy must be employed. 
I'm going to end with a little sort of story or a set of stories by a priest that I read about, because Pam is going to talk about this particular topic, and we'll probably have two presentations. But the first is perhaps some of the, the darker side, potentially, of homeopathy. One priest observed the following. Many people write and ask me, this is the priest writing, what is wrong with homeopathy? Can a Christian use it? Is it connected with New Age or the esoteric, the occult even? I have seen the bad effects of it on Christians and their spiritual lives. One religious sister I know in Slovenia, again, this is the priest talking, told me that she was asked by a doctor who gave her homeopathic medicines for her cancer to stop having Holy Communion in order that the medicines might have a better effect. Stop receiving Holy Communion was one of the prescriptions. Many people in Germany, Austria, and France told me that homeopathy doctors, while giving medicines, advised them not to make the sign of the cross or to call the name of Jesus before taking these homeo medicines, as normal Christians would do. Perhaps the sign of the cross or the name of Jesus may bombard the power or energy in the homeo medicines. And then he ends with this sort of story, which is interesting. Thirteen years before, a Catholic homeopathy doctor asked me to bless his clinic, his homeopathic uh, clinic. Gladly, I went to his clinic and blessed the clinic with the normal prayers from the Roman ritual and sprinkled holy water all over as he requested. But after a few days, he came and told me, Father... After your blessing, the sprinkling of the holy water over my clinic and medicines, I had to throw all the medicines away because they lost their potency, their power. Then I asked the doctor himself, this is the priest talking, the reason of the medicines losing its power while I prayed with the power of the Holy Spirit. He had to admit that the power of the medicines was something contrary to the Holy Spirit. Then he asked me to look into the bottles of medicine of allopathy. It's another sort of traditional medicine where you sort of attack the disease, where the contents of medicines are clearly declared. You look at bottles of medicine. So if I'll tell you, you know, 15% amount of this stuff, 20% amount of this stuff, 5% of this stuff, 10% water, whatever. Whereas there's no such declaration on the contents or bottles or packets of homeomedicines. Instead, the medicines declared their effectiveness by potencies, like thousand potency or 10,000 potency, a million potency, etc. So there's not really ingredients per se. The doctor himself admitted his ignorance of the origin of this power or potency. He said that the main effect of homeomedicines is a placebo effect. That was a homeopathic uh, sort of practitioner speaking, a placebo effect, right? He continues, it is clear that the potency is a hidden power, a cult power. I do not make any judgment about homeopathy as I am not an expert about it. That's the priest speaking. But one thing I will say to my Christian brethren, 
that it's not good for a Christian to use them or to practice them, whatever good effect it may bring upon the sick people. Many esoteric and new age treatments advertise saying, quote, they are cheap and they have no side effects, unquote. But they don't say that the main side effect on Christians is that they take people away from Christ and the church and the salvation which Christ has brought to this world, unquote. The Vatican document, and there is one out there called, quote, Jesus Christ, the bearer of the living water, unquote. It's a fairly you know, recent document, the last few years, clearly speaks of a potential hidden danger of homeopathy and other alternative medicines based upon occult powers. So all that being said, we have again, one of our good parishioners, of course, you're, you're all good, but one of our good parishioners, Pam Acker, uh, and she's gonna talk about homeopathy, but I wouldn't really be doing us sort, sort of real help if I didn't ask her to give us an update first on how the vaccines are going. Because um, I've read in the paper recently, like even today, that Johnson & Johnson vaccine has basically been put on pause in the United States. The FDA, the Drug Administration, and the CDC, they have put a pause on this. So there's some, some, some issues. So Pam, would you give us an update on how, how things are going with the vaccines in terms of their help or their adverse effects on people? Sure. Um, so since we last spoke, Father, there's two new licensed vaccines. Those are the AstraZeneca vaccine and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And they both work on the same principle. They're both what's called viral vector vaccines. And they, um, they use uh, something called an adenovirus. It's a virus that normally infects human beings, but um, it's been modified in these vaccine platforms so that it doesn't cause disease. And then they've sort of um, inserted parts of the uh, coronavirus into or on this adenovirus vector. So um, it's called a virus vector because basically the, the, the other virus is sort of shuttling the vaccine components into your body so that you, the idea is so that you would produce a better immune response because you don't necessarily produce a great immune response sometimes to what are called subunit vaccines where you just take a piece of the virus and, and expose your body to that. So this is uh, just like the mRNA technology. This is a new technology that there, there is one licensed viral vector vaccine available. It's an Ebola vaccine and it uses, um, oh shoot, I forget which virus it uses, but it's not an adenovirus. So it's, it's, um, there's only one instance of this technology being licensed previously um, for use in the US and, and it's just for Ebola. So again, it's not something that's gonna be administered to loads and loads of people. So we don't have a lot of clinical data on the safety of these viral vector vaccines. But we what, what has happened is um, the AstraZeneca vaccine in particular, the, that has been pulled from a number of countries in Europe. I, I think the number is in the neighborhood of 20 different countries in Europe ha have, have um, decided against continuing to use that vaccine because it's been associated with a rare and very dangerous blood clotting disorder. And that's actually the same reason that the, the FDA today um, um, was putting a pause on the, the use of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine in the US. And there was a meeting that was um, uh, supposed to be held today and I, I didn't look into the results of the conclusion of it, um, but about whether or not that 
vaccine should be suspended altogether um, out of an abundance of caution. They were, were their exact word, words, Father. <laughs> um, I always remember that word from now on, and out of an abundance of caution. <laughs> right. You know, because uh, there, there's, there's a tremendous hesitancy to admit um, that there's any dangerous uh, side effects associated with any vaccines, but I think particularly with the COVID vaccine. So um, I'm going to quote here a couple of things from an article by Michael Haynes, who writes for the LifeSite News, um, because he, he did all the crunching of numbers for me, which is, is quite a relief uh, that, that I didn't have to do that by myself. But he, uh, the main thrust of his article was, and he's writing in the UK, um, was that the, the government has modeled a planned, he calls it a planned third wave of COVID-19 um, that, that they're predicting to sort of pass through the population there in Britain. And, and this is a quote from the actual um, government documents. It says the resurgence in both hospitalizations and deaths would be dominated by those that have received two doses of the vaccine comprising around 60% and 70% of the wave respectively. So they, um, the government is predicting that 60 to 70% of the hospitalizations and deaths that they're going to see in the next wave of COVID is going to be among people who've had uh, the vaccine already. That was kind of flooring to me because it's supposedly 97% effective. Um, mm -hmm. But as we've discussed, those numbers have been monkeyed with considerably. Um, the other really remarkable thing in this article, um, uh, Mr. Hayes goes through the, well, he reports that there's, um, there were a total of 786 people in the UK who have died after COVID vaccination. Um, and then the, the way we keep track of this in the US is through VAERS is the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. And despite the fact that I think this has been in the news a lot more with COVID-19 and there's been a lot more sort of vaccine hesitancy and there's been a lot more people kind of circulating and trying to get the word out and saying, if you have a reaction, go and report it to VAERS. But the, the Department of Health and Human Services did a study um, a few years ago where they, they basically concluded that less than 1%, you know, maybe as little as 0.1% of all adverse reactions to vaccines actually get reported to VAERS. So as a, as a you know, post-marketing uh, surveillance tool for the safety of vaccines, it's really um, pretty pathetic. So even if, we, even if we assume a tenfold increase, you know, in... in um, reports to VAERS, which I think is probably unrealistic, still we can say only 10% of adverse reactions are probably getting reported. So keep that in mind as I, as I read you these numbers. So as of April 1st, so because VAERS data is only reported every, every week or so, the, the system showed that 2,342 people have died after COVID vaccination. Um, there's been a total of 56,869 adverse reactions that were reported and 4,872 of them have required hospitalizations. Now, a lot of people wanna say, well, there's been like, you know, 150 million vaccinations. So these numbers are really paltry in comparison. You know, this is way better than the, than the COVID-19 disease. but the, the thing that really was remarkable about this article is that, that Michael Hayes looked at the total number of deaths reported to VAERS since 1990, so the last 21 years of deaths, there's only been 11,050. And 20% of those deaths have come from COVID-19 and have occurred in the last three and a half months. So when you, when you put the numbers in that perspective, um, there are 15 times more deaths per month um, over that period of time 
due, that, that would be due to COVID than all the other vaccines combined. Um, so that, that's, uh, that's some pretty shocking safety stats. Um, so, and that, that works out to about uh, 669 deaths per month since the vaccine rollout, just in the US. Right, and, I, and of course, what you were saying too, I think is that you're just talking about cases, I guess, that have been reported officially. I mean, they, they're sort of bringing things, but some, most cases are not, or there's not necessarily all these difficulties being reported to this agency that sort of looks at injuries and difficulties with vaccines. Right, right. So, you know, if, if even if we're saying that a very generous 10% of adverse reactions are reported to VAERS, that, that would mean that we've got close to 570,000 adverse reactions. And 570,000 adverse reactions out of 150 million vaccines sounds a little worse than, than 56,000. But if it's really still closer to 1%, you know, we're talking, we're talking, you know, more than five and a half million, um, which is, is starting to, to get into numbers that are, you know, significantly worse than, than the rates of reactions that were, or the rates of serious events that we're seeing from COVID. What about, I mean, I hate to, take too much time in this, but what about those cases where, you know, they have done the vaccines on some people, especially maybe the elderly, the infirm, mm -hmm. then, then they find out that they contract COVID. Oh, yes. And um, they, but, but what is the cause of death that they're saying? For, I guess they say it's COVID, but they just took the vaccine right. two days or three days before. Right. So, so there, there is a, there is a pretty noticeable double standard in the way that these deaths are reported. So if you contract COVID, I think up to like 20 something days prior to your death, your death is, is, can be recorded as a death from COVID-19. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you're vaccinated prior, you know, even just a few days prior to dying, um, your death is not recorded as being due to the vaccine. So generally speaking, cause of death is not going to be noted as a vaccine reaction, um, even if there's temporal, uh, a strong temporal relationship. Um, and so it's, it's really um, kind of a, kind of disheartening that that's the case, because of course, we're going to see a lot more deaths from COVID than we are from vaccination reported in the official literature. Um, and, and that's going to take longer to, to get this um, problem shut down. But, you know, also to kind of put this in perspective, you know, um, there were other vaccines that were released, and I, I'm, I'm forgetting specifically which disease it was for. Uh, but there was a vaccine that was released, and I think there was a report of something like 60 deaths maybe associated with it, and it was pulled from the market, you know, after after that. You know, we're, we're talking, we're talking like 40 times that, you know, with 23,042 deaths. I mean, pretty close to 40 times that. So the, the double standard here is is really just kind of wild um, because in, in previous instances, you know, and there was an increased um, incidence of Guillain-Barre syndrome following the 1976 swine flu vaccine. It was, it was a very modest increase. I think it, it, it doubled the number of Guillain-Barre syndrome cases maybe, and, um, or they noticed a doubling and they, they pulled it. I think it was, it ended up being 10 times as likely as the regular flu vaccine once, once all the numbers came in and all the people were diagnosed. Um, but we're already way past 10 times the rate of any other vaccine with, with the COVID vaccine. Um, and that, those numbers were reported in another LifeSite News 
uh, article that went out yesterday and I didn't, I didn't actually print that one. So I don't have them in front of me. Um, but the, yeah, the, the rate of Bell's palsy, the rate of Guillain-Barre syndrome, uh, a number of these really disconcerting side effects are also very, very high, intolerably high, I would think, um, for something that that's being, you know, where, where there are, there, uh, you know, I, I received a, an email from my, uh, one of the health systems I'm in today, you know, because I've, I've been uh, receiving a lot of medical care from a variety of sources because of my ankle injury. And, and it was saying something like, you know, we, we have to, we have to make sure or sign up for your vaccine appointment because we have to make sure that 80% of people get vaccinated. Well, you know, for something that we're pushing on 80% of the population, you, you would think that we would have a better uh, standard for safety profile, mm -hmm. but that's just not the case right now. And yet they seem to be still pushing. We were talking about this earlier, the fact that um, a lot of the protocols, the mandates are still in place, even though numbers of COVID have dropped dramatically. Uh, mm -hmm. they, they well, that was partly due to a case redefinition. Right. So. But, 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 you, but you just wonder though, this is sort of the carrot that they're sort of putting before us. You know, you better, you better get yourself vaccinated or else you'll be on lockdown for... For, for, for months and in years to come. So it seems to be, right. you know, the little carrot. Yeah, no, definitely dangled. freedom. Freedom is the carrot that's being dangled in front of people. I, I mean, I know people personally who, who got vaccinated because, well, I want to be able to travel and it's like, well, travel's not even restricted yet. So like, why are you getting vaccinated now? You know? Mm -hmm. um, so it's really, it's, it's unfortunate how, and, and so many people, you know, and we have a, a corner of sanity, you know, thanks be to God right here. Um, but, but even with this little corner of sanity, I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast is, is like <laughs> super tired of COVID, <laughs> um, right. you know, so, so people who don't have that people who can't go to mass people who have to wear the mask all the time and not see other human beings faces, um, you know, have to do this for their job and, and, and suffocate on a daily basis, which thanks be to God, I don't, I don't have to do because of the work that I do. Um, but, uh, I, I, I can't even imagine how strong of a, force of coercion this must be on those folks. Mm -hmm. Right. This is really unjust. Yes. So um, I guess what you told us last time we talked about vaccines, that Pfizer wasn't doing so good either in Norway. We, we talked about that before. Right. Yeah. There were a number and, of deaths uh, that were associated with the Pfizer vaccine in Norway. AstraZeneca, I guess in Europe, there's a lot of various countries that are rethinking AstraZeneca because of clotting. Right, because they're recognizing the link between that and the blood cause clotting disorder. This decision of Johnson and John, I rather FDA uh, in regards to Johnson and Johnson to put a pause on it. I mean, this is really happening pretty. It, the vaccine just started, you know, a little while ago. Right, and it's already these. Bad yeah, we're already pulling it in certain countries and for certain certain uh, formulations. Right. Well, very good. And any anything else you would want to mention about the vaccines before we go to uh, homeopathy? No, that's that's uh, that's my only update for now. I, I do confess I, I kind of got off of the uh, news whirlwind for a little while for Easter. I took an Easter break, <laughs> um, so that's that's the most up to date news news that I have. So very good. And again, for those who uh, I think all of you know, but uh, Pam Pam has a wonderful book, Vaccinations: A Catholic Perspective. Uh, so COVID creation studies uh, puts that out. Uh, so again, vaccines and have a perspective, um, uh, just looking at vaccines in general, uh, but, it's, but especially from our sort of Catholic uh, uh, faith as well. So uh, 
Anyway, tell us a little bit about your connection with homeopathy in, in terms of your past and your investigations into it. Uh, because, you know, you know, people want to be healthy, you know, right. and, and I, think, I think they look at some of these vaccines they look at some of the medicines today, the, the big pharma companies, and they would like to go back to uh, a more normal way of sort of healing and, and a more natural way of healing. So you can see there's an appeal that homeopathy would, ne would, ne would necessarily have, but maybe you could give us some thoughts in regards to what you experienced in the past and maybe some concerns you have about it now. Sure. So um, I started using homeopathy in 2013 um, and I was introduced to it by, by a traditional Catholic mom who I, you know, I, I trusted just absolutely implicitly. Um, she's the same one who got me uh, onto the idea of ordered music and got me to stop listening to rock music for which I will be eternally grateful. <laughs> um, uh, so much less to work off in, in purgatory or, you know, God forbid elsewhere. Um, so, uh, so great, wonderful, wonderful lady. And she, um, you know, treated her whole family, all of their, their, uh, ailments with homeopathy. And I was at, at their house at one point. And so this must've been summer because, uh, I had a mosquito bite and, and I have, um, you know, my family, as I've mentioned in some of my talks before, my family has a strong history of autoimmune disease and, and, um, also allergy, allergic reactions. So, um, I don't know if I'm allergic to mosquito bites exactly, but I, I end up with welts that are like good quarter to half dollar size when I get bit by a mosquito. And, and these welts, you know, come up within, you know, 20, 30 minutes. And it, it, it's really kind of shocking sometimes to people. It's just like, what happened to you? And I got bit by a mosquito, <laughs> you know, it's slightly embarrassing. Um, so I, I had, I had been bitten. I had had, uh, you know, it was having one of these welts develop while I was at her house. And she said, here, take this homeopathic remedy. And I, I don't remember it, there, there are two that are mainly recommended for bites and stings. And one of them is apis and I forget what the other one is. Um, but, uh, I took it and not, not believing at all that it would work because she had talked to me about homeopathy before. And I had, I had actually, um, I myself had, had dosed her daughter for an earache when I had, had taken two of her daughters, um, or chaperoned two of her daughters on a, on a church trip, um, and, uh, had seen very little, if any effect from that at all. Uh, the, the ear pain, I think was more due to a change in altitude and it just kind of resolved overnight as she slept. Um, certainly didn't resolve in response to homeopathic med medicine. So I was like, you know, this isn't going to work, but it just to make, to make you happy, I'll take it because it's, it can't hurt anything. Right. Um, so I took the, the remedy and, um, my insect bite instantly went away. And, you know, these are, these are welts that normally would last for several days with tremendous amounts of itching. And, and I was, uh, I was sold, uh, absolutely <laughs> on, on the advocacy of, of this remedy. And, um, and I don't know if this has been true for other people who have used homeopathy, but it's interesting that, that the same remedy for the same ailment didn't always work quite so well for me, but that first, uh, exposure really stuck in my head as like, you know, this, this stuff works, this is effective. And I used homeopathy for things like, um, colds for, uh, stomach issues is most of the, most of the folks in the parish know who've tried to invite me over for dinner. Uh, I had some longstanding stomach issues for a very long time. Um, which have thanks be to God resolved and not through homeopathy. Um, but I, I did use homeopathy to, to dose myself for stomach issues, um, uh, sinus infections, um, things like that. 
And then I even uh, at one point actually went to a homeopathic practitioner who was Catholic, um, who had been recommended to me by another traditional Catholic mom friend of mine. And uh, he was located in San Antonio or no, he, he was he was located in Texas anyway, um, but he, uh, I saw him periodically, I think for roughly somewhere around six to eight months, that, that period of my life runs together a little bit, but it was definitely at least six months, um, you know, roughly, roughly a monthly visit um, to, to deal with some issues with depression um, that I was dealing with at the time, which have also, thanks be to God, resolved, again, not through homeopathy. Um, I would say exactly opposite of homeopathy. So, um, that's, that's kind of been my exposure. I, I've used the remedies myself for a number of years. I've recommended them to other people. Um, I've even seen a homeopathic practitioner in person. And it wasn't until a few months ago, um, when I was, uh, discussing some things with my confessor, um, in terms of alternative health treatments. And I was doing some reading and investigations for the vaccine book. And I came across actually the same priest that you were quoting earlier, father, I came across his, comment on, on blessing uh, a whole clinic full of homeopathic remedies. And um, uh, it, 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 that story floored me. Um, it, it definitely sort of sent up a red flag of maybe, maybe there's something wrong here. So I, um, I, uh, you spoke a little bit with Father Ripperger about, you know, what, what do you do to, you know, deal with the effects of occult alternative health practices? And, and just, you know, I didn't speak with him specifically at that time about homeopathy, but I, I, I just, you know, kind of in general, what do you do? And, and so he, he connected with my confessor. I ended up um, having some chapter three prayers set over me, which is, I think, the equivalent of a minor exorcism. Is that correct, Father? Um, it's like an exorcism of a place or something like that. So okay. I would be leading up, I suppose. Yeah. Gotcha. So it's sort of a precursor to a minor exorcism, then I guess. Um, and I and I confessed my involvement with all of the occult uh, uh, health practices, and that included homeopathy, because at, the, at that point I was fairly convinced after the reading that I'm going to share with you all tonight, that it was a cult in its origin and it remains a cult in its practice, you know, with, with a po the possibility of a few, um, you know, maybe very few providers who do not prepare remedies in a very ritualistic and occult way. Um, but given my involvement with, um, uh, things of this nature, cause I, I also have dealt with some Freemasonic issues in my family. So, uh, Unfortunately, the repercussions of exposure to the occult are not an unfamiliar thing to me. Um, I, I, I decided I didn't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. So I went to confession, and um, the effect was actually immediate after the confession. I, um, I had had an experience once like this before, actually, when I did have an actual minor exorcism set over me for some oppression and obsession um, that uh, the exorcist figured was going on. And there was this, this sort of um, feeling almost like a white noise had cleared out of my head. Uh, so some, so the sort of distracting background noise was just sort of no longer present. It was much easier to think, it was much easier to pray, it was much easier to just go about my day and do things. And so immediately after confessing my involvement in the alternative health uh, practices, that, that same thing happened again. So I took that as a pretty clear indication that, that there had been some, some negative repercussions of being involved in those treatments. And then, and then after the, um, the chapter three prayers, there were some additional, uh, things that cleared up and that, that definitely, um, 
is my impetus for, for sharing the information that I'm sharing today. Like, this is not just, you know, Pam Acker's personal preference on alternative health therapies. <laughs> so um, I, I feel like I experienced some pretty, some pretty interesting phenomenon um, in order that I might be motivated to share it with other people. So so that's sort of your, your, your sort of contact with it. Um, yeah, that's my, my context where I'm coming from. Yeah. Right. So, but you've also looked into, uh, you know, the origins of the actual sort of practice of homeopathy. Right. Um, and just, I just wanted to give a quick sort of uh, preface to this. People will always say, well, you know, just because something has a bad origin or whatever, or I, I think what to be careful is that, there's a book by E. Michael Jones, a good writer, uh, Culture Wars, and wrote a number of books. One is called Modern Degenerates. When you look at people like Freud or um, uh, the person, uh, uh, oh, oh, I forget, uh, the, the anthropologist, the, uh, uh, I forget the famous anthropologist, um, um, oh, oh. Anyway, it'll come to me. It'll come to I me. I know. I hate that feeling, Father. <laughs> yes, I know. And, uh, and of course, the person up in uh, Indi Indiana University uh, that had that sort of uh, perverse sort of sexual. Oh, Kinsey. 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 Alfred Kinsey. Right, yeah. Exactly. So, anyway, look at their lives. You know, these are the people who have produced all of these particular. Um, these are all the, these are all the ones that sort of this is the origin. They're coming from individuals who have uh, some serious issues, some serious like Picasso and his paintings. I mean, there's there's some serious issues that Eagle Michael Jones talks about. So it is important that we look at the origins of some of these sciences and who was responsible for bringing them about. So maybe right. you can tell us a little bit about this. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, you never you never want to descend to the level of ad hominem fallacy and just sort of attacking the originator rather than the actual practice. So that's why uh, you suggested, I think, that we, we do this in two two phases. We'll talk about the origin today and, and some of the some of the um, practices more a little bit next time. Um, so Samuel Hahnemann, who founded um, homeopathy, was born in 1755. So we're, and he started attending medical school at the age of 20. So that would have been 1775. So we're putting him in the context of, you know, right around the beginning of the American revolution. And, um, uh, he was, he was in Germany. So he studied at the university of Leipzig and he graduated in, in four years. And so the, the environment that he was coming into in terms of medicine was one that was really pretty brutal. So, um, pretty common practices at the time were bloodletting. I mean, that's that's how Washington died. I think ultimately, George Washington, he was um, ill, and uh, and then they they did some bloodletting and and drained a bit too much blood, and he never recovered and and, and died a few days later. Um, so that was a, a pretty gruesome and brutal practice that was actually very bad for people. Um, the use of leeches was also questionable. Um, the use of uh, uh, purgative elements, the use of opium as a painkiller. Uh, there's a lot of really um, heavy hitting kind of bad practices floating around in medicine at the time. And um, so there's there's some theories that his, his uh, thought process kind of developed as a reaction to that. So that just kind of gives a little bit of the context of where he's coming from. So when he was 22, which was roughly in the middle of his medical career, he was initiated into a Freemasonic lodge. And he was faithful to this lodge um, later in his life as well. And his, his you know, sort of 
major work, which is called the Organon, began with the uh, Freemasonic motto, which is Aude Sapere, so dare to be wise. So he, even, even in that work, you know, much later in his life was signaling, you know, I'm, I'm all about the Freemasonry here. So the Freemasons, as, you know, many people watching this know, are known for studying esoteric doctrines that are based on um, things that are, you know, kind of considered ancient mysteries of like Egypt and Greece. And they, um, they're, they're, ideas and practice are ultimately satanic. And um, that's kind of revealed more and more and more as you move up in, in degrees in Freemasonry. And of course, anybody who wants to kind of look into that, you know, can can reference somebody better at it than me, particularly Father Ripper, I think has talked a lot about it. Um, so, so keep in mind that he was a Freemason. This is where he's coming from. And there were a number of other occult influences on him. He was also a deist. That was, you know, kind of the, the um, fashionable thing to be at, at the time if you weren't really quite Christian um, and you, you you couldn't really say you were an atheist uh, yet openly you know that that was not socially acceptable so a lot of people um, in fact a lot of the founding fathers of America kind of hid behind this idea of being a deist so I, I believe that God you know sort of started things off but then after that he hasn't really been involved there's just not really a personal God involved in um, in the world and so that's another influence that was on him um, and it's, it's particularly reflected in a letter he wrote to Johann Stopp, who was, um, one of his early disciples. And, um, uh, this is really, it's really pretty ugly. He says, um, this is where you can read divine wisdom. And he's speaking of the writings of Confucius, um, without miracle myths and superstition. I regard it as an important sign of our times that Confucius is now available for us to read. Soon I will embrace him in the kingdom of blissful spirits, the benefactor of humanity, who has shown us the straight path to wisdom and to God already 650 years before um, what he calls the arch enthusiast, which is how he refers to our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, other translations uh, render that word daydreamer. Um, and his biographer writes that he, he took offense at Jesus um, because he did not lead the enlightened on the straight way to wisdom, um, but he wanted to struggle with sinners on a difficult path toward the establishment of the kingdom of God, basically on earth. Um, and he called him a man of sorrows who took the darkness of the world on himself and was an offense to the lover of etheric wisdom. And um, in, all, in all of this, he, he concludes, I think rightly, that Hanuman certainly was not a Christian. And you cannot openly reject our Lord in that way and um, be a Christian. Uh, he was also, Hanman was also influenced by um, Swedenborg. I believe uh, our, our good associate pastor has mentioned more than once in some of his talks. Um, and uh, Swedenborg was um, particularly known for teaching his followers how to enter a state of consciousness that would put them in touch with spirit entities. So he was uh, definitely involved in occult practices, uh, directly communicating with spirits. Um, Frank Mesmer was another um, influence on Hanuman, he developed this idea of mesmerism and he used hypnotic states to heal. And so all of these folks were um, influential in the work that he eventually wrote. And some of them he references directly in the Organon and others he just um, learned under when he was he was uh, going about his studies. So, and and his, his work is really kind of echoed by a uh, gentleman by the, I shouldn't call him a gentleman, a man by the name of Rudolf Steiner, who is the founder of Anthroposophy and, and Biodynamic Agriculture. So he's a big name in occult circles right now. And he, he shares the same view that Hanneman does 
about the vital force, which we'll, we'll um, kind of touch on here in just a second. So Hanneman's uh, credited with kind of discovering and, and putting forward this idea of homeopathy based on a very, you know, a lot of, a lot of scientific discoveries come about in a very fortuitous way, right? Um, Fleming discovered penicillin because some, some mold dropped into his bacteriological experiments and they failed to grow. Um, so science is not, you know, uh, fortuity is not unknown in science, but he discovered or invented homeopathy after he took, he was translating a work on medicines and he noticed some interesting things about the, the substance quinine, um, which is used to relieve the symptoms of malaria. And so he took some quinine and, and was trying to sort of replicate on himself the experiments that he had read in the book. And this produced in him um, what he interpreted as the symptoms of malaria. So he had some general malaise and some fever and some other things. Some uh, doctors sort of looking back on what he experienced and how he describes it actually think that his reaction is more consistent with an allergic reaction to quinine. He had taken it earlier in his life and it is possible to develop uh, an allergy after a primary exposure to an allergen. But uh, also allergies are not like super common at the time. So it's debatable whether that's actually what was happening or not. But his response to quinine was actually atypical. It, it's not the typical response of someone to have to quinine. And he, he um, misinterpreted it as being similar to the symptoms of malaria. And that's where he came up with this idea of that, that like cures like, that principle of, of similarity. And this principle wasn't actually new. It was based um, on uh, Egyptian... Uh, esoteric medicine and it was also based on the the thought of Paracelsus who was an alchemist and um I'll actually quote from him too he he said that uh likes must be cured by means of their likes and he's writing he died in 1591 so he's writing you know more than 200 years before Hanneman um is developing his ideas so he says likes must be cured by means of their likes and not by their contraries as heat by heat cold by cold shooting by shooting for one heat attracts the other to itself one cold the other as the magnet does the iron Hence, prickly simples can remove diseases whose characteristic is prickly pain, and poisonous minerals can cure and destroy symptoms of poisoning when they are brought to bear upon them. And although sometimes a chill may be removed and suppressed, still I say, as a philosopher and one experienced in nature's ways, that the similar must be fitted with its similar, whereby it will be removed radically and thoroughly. If I am a proper physician and understand medicine, he who does not attend to this is no true physician and cannot boast of his knowledge of medicine because he is unable to distinguish betwixt cold and warm, betwixt dry and humid for knowledge and experience together with a fundamental observation of nature constitute the perfect physician. So it's very interesting as I was doing this research, I felt like there were a lot of parallels with Hahnemann and Darwin. Um, you know, Darwin also stole his idea from other people who had been writing long before him. Uh, natural selection had been around since the time of the Greeks. Um, so, so Hahnemann really is taking or given credit, I guess, uh, for ideas that are not his own. So they come from, from other occult sources. And um, there's multiple documents, uh, a number of papyr papyruses, the Ebers papyrus, Edwin Smith papyrus, London Medical papyrus, who um, that all discuss this principle of similars in Egyptian medicine. And in Egyptian medicine, it was often accomplished through amulets um, rather than through, uh, you, you know, actually something that you would ingest, but the, the principle is still there. And there are actually some homeopathic remedies that correspond pretty much exactly to ancient Egyptian remedies. So it's not unreasonable to assert that, that Hahnemann was influenced by that ancient Egyptian um, idea as well. Uh, so, just, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Um, so, so homeopathy 
one of its main principles is like is cured by like. Right. Okay. So maybe if you can maybe give an example of that, what they at least are thinking, and then what is a traditional sort of Western classic medicine where it seems to be maybe the is it the opposite or something like that where so we, we attack. Well, not not necessarily. Um, I think that's a, that's a broad misinterpretation of, of what homeopaths call allopathic medicine, which is how they kind of derogatorily refer to uh, uh, modern medicine. And, you know, as, as many folks know, I'm not like a wholesale advocate of modern medicine being a sufferer of iatric genic injury myself. Um, but, but generally speaking, the, the homeopath characterizes himself as working with the body and characterizes the allopath as working against the body. So an allopath would say, oh, you have a fever. You know, we need to give you Tylenol to suppress the fever. And a homeopath would say, oh, you have a fever. We need to give you a homeopathic remedy that, that would produce a fever in a healthy person so that, you know, that remedy will cure the fever that you're experiencing in yourself. Um, so it's sort of this idea of like, uh, you know, something, something coming in line with the symptoms, something that would cause the symptoms themselves in a healthy person will be used to cure the symptoms in a sick person that's displaying that particular set of symptoms. Okay. So that's, that's the best general description I can use because I, I'm not remembering some of the, the specific names of things, but, um, so that's the, that's the distinction there. Um, and you know, I think it's important to note, and this is, you know, something that Hanneman um, advocated and a lot of so-called traditional homeopaths, those who really follow his work a little bit more closely and don't try to kind of introduce a scientific element in it. Um, the, the, the action of this, this uh, homeopathic remedy is, is, you mentioned this in your intro, intro father, it's, it's done on what's called the vital force. So homeopathy relies in principle on vitalism. It, it relies on, you know, the remedy having an effect on a spiritual body that, that man is said to have. And so um, I'll quote Anneman himself from the Organon. Um, he says, the diseases of man are not caused by any material substance, any disease matter, but they're solely spirit-like or dynamic derangements of the spirit-like power, the vital principle that animates the human body. Homeopathy knows that a cure can only take place by the reaction of the vital force against the rightly chosen remedy that has been ingested. Thus, the true healing art is to effect an alteration in energetic automatic vital force, whereby the vital force is liberated and enabled to return to the normal standard of health and to its proper function. So philosophically, <laughs> the foundation of this medicine, it's, it's energy medicine. Um, it's energy medicine. It corresponds with um, the chi of acupuncture. Um, it, it corresponds with the prana of, of yogi. It corresponds with monism. It corresponds with all kinds of, you know, new age and occult ideas. This is somehow, how, somehow you're restoring balance to the energy of the body. And whenever you hear about any kind of remedy that claims to restore balance to the energy of the body, your, your, your little uh, antenna should go up. Red this flags. is not, Red flags, yes. what's that? Red flags. Yes. This is not yeah. a, not a pious Catholic statement. <laughs> um, you know, and then uh, he, he really believed his work was inspired by God um, in whom he called the great spirit that is adored by the inhabitants of the solar systems, which is also rather heretical. Um, so, he, he wrote, wrote that book and it, and it talks much about this, this 
vitalistic concept. And, and those who are currently practicing homeopathy, you know, are encouraged to even meditate on this book and, and just read it over and over again so that it sort of, they, they pick up the spirit of it. I mean, these words were pretty much published in the Swiss Journal of Homeopathy in the 1960s. And, you know, some of that could have been the 1960s. It was a tumultuous time, but um, that's, that's, that's his background. Um, So we've talked a little bit about like cures like, um, that it might be helpful to talk to you a little bit about the homeopathic medicines are, are verified or the symptomology is sort of figured out by means of uh, a phenomenon called provings. So what will happen is a, whole, a healthy uh, homeopath will take, you know, the very dilute um, homeopathic remedy and will observe all of the symptoms that happen in their body for um, over a period of days or even weeks. And there's a couple of problems with these provings. And the first is that they're highly subjective. So you end up with um, some really weird things in the, in the Materia Medica, which is the, the compilation of all of the homeopathic remedies and all of the symptoms that they're supposed to produce, which then of course, subsequently means they're supposed to help cure. So um, I'll just give one example of the symptoms of chamomila that uh, Hanneman himself included in his 1846 version of the Materia Medica, which is constantly being updated as more homeopaths add um, additional symptoms. But they included um, vertigo, feeling dull, an aching pain in the head, a violent desire for coffee, grumbling and creeping in the upper teeth, great aversion to the wind, burning pain in the hand, being quarrelsome, having vexatious dreams, uh, heat and redness specifically of the right cheek. Um, so it, it it's almost as though these poor folks taking these things had such a myopic, self-inverted view that, that any little thing that happened in their body, they recorded as a symptom. So that's it's a, problem for a, num- a problem for a number of reasons. It's, it's very hyper, hypochondriac-like. Um, and, and they were told to expect symptoms. So, you know, it, it's, it's easy to, to think you're experiencing something or imagine you're experiencing something when you're told to expect it. Um, but also just like being constantly focused on your body. And I can attest to this from personal experience with my, my ankle. You know, I, I spent a lot of time for a very long time, you know, paying attention to the slightest. Did that hurt a little more? Is this a little more swollen? Is this a little, you know, whatever? And you can, you can start to kind of confuse yourself with, uh, with what actually is going on in your body versus what you're thinking is going on in your body. Um, but the biggest problem with the provings is that there was no baseline. There's no control. So it wasn't like these people recorded their symptoms, like their general symptoms that they were experiencing just in their everyday life for a period of days or weeks prior to taking the remedy and then compared after the remedy, remedy with this baseline. They just took the remedy and they noted everything down. You know, so, so if I had taken a homeopathic remedy uh, a couple of weeks ago, I, I would have had to note, you know, everything that happened in my life up to this point, you know, including the fact that I was up late one night crying over something in my life that had nothing to do <laughs> with a homeopathic remedy. You know, those, those kinds of things were, were just included sort of um, without any proper scientific checks and balances. Um, so you end up with all kinds of things that are irrelevant to the actual uh, disease that are relevant then to the homeopath. Um, you know, and then of course we have the problem of, you know, the infinitesimals, right? So the, the more diluted something is, the more effective it is. And that violates the basic tenets of pharmacology. Um, and, you know, it's true that there are certain, uh, you know, there's like a certain ideal range of things 
uh, where, where you're going to end up having the best response to them. So you don't want to give yourself too much of a drug because you'll overdose. You don't want to give yourself too little of a drug because you'll have no pharmacological effect. Um, and so I think that there's, um, it's a really important, like basic tenet of chemistry that sort of needs to be explained here. So I'll beg your indulgence, father, while I teach a chemistry class in your Wednesday night audience. What Pam is going to do, I mean, this is the thing that struck me. I'm not particularly of a scientific mind. And when I read that, the greater the dilution, the greater the potency of the, that just doesn't make any sense. So, but it's, it's actually against a very important principle of chemistry. So maybe you could explain that. Right. So, so um, maybe some folks have heard of Avogadro's number or the mole. And if you have, you're probably cringing because that was your least favorite part of high school chemistry, because it seems to be a very, very difficult concept to understand. But basically um, a mole of something is 6.022 times 10 to the 24th molecules. That's a lot of molecules. And so a mole of water is approximately 18 grams of water, which would be 18 milliliters of water, which is, you know, roughly uh, so I should have looked this up. It's a few tablespoons, you know, so it's not, it's not that much. Mm -hmm. Um, and that there's kind of, just kind of to give you a concept of, you know, in a few tablespoons of water, there are 6.022 times 10 to the 24th molecules. That's a lot. Um, so when homeopathic medications are diluted, they, they dilute them um, in a, a serial process. So when you serially dilute something, um, you, you put one part uh, medicine into nine parts water. So you have a one in 10 dilution. That's, that's a one X dilution. And then you take that dilution and you dilute, you put one part that into nine parts water. Now you've diluted your, your, your um, you know, one tenth dilution, you've diluted that one tenth. So now you have a one one hundredth dilution and that's referred to as two X. So when you see two X, it's like 10 to the second power. So it's a one in 100 dilution. If you get to the point where you have anything over 24 X, so that's anything over 10 to the 24th, you would have absolutely zero molecules in multiple tablespoons of homeopathic remedy. So zero, zero molecules and tablespoons of homeopathic remedy. And just to kind of put this in perspective, um, the probability of having one drop of, of a, a 30X solution of table salt containing one sodium or chloride ion is actually in the neighborhood of one in 50 million billion. <laughs> I don't even know how to count that high. Um, and so, it's, but you know, this is, so, so if there's 500 quadrillion doses are administered, which means every person on earth takes a dose every three second, three seconds for 75 years, one person would receive one atom of the original salt. Mm. And this, this is the stuff that you find on the supermarket shelves, the 30 C dilutions, and you'll see up to 200 C, which, which means that this problem is compounded beyond like literally diluted more than one atom in the single universe. There's only 10 to the 80th atoms in the entire universe. And if you have a 10 to the 200th dilution, like literally you have less likelihood of having, you know, astronomically less likelihood of having one single atom of the original substance in that medication than you have of finding one single atom in the entire physical universe. 
So you're talking about obviously something that's quite diluted. <laughs> and Rather. There really cannot be, naturally speaking, any potency to this particular potion. No, certainly not from a biological or a chemical perspective. So, so but here's your point, though, because because of your experience with this, you've seen it work. Right. So how, 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 how do we explain that then when there's no agency within the actual potion that is mixed up and diluted multiple times? Right. It's worked. Well, the homeopaths will say that the 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 water remembers the molecule. So I'm I'm currently you know diving down the rabbit hole of papers on water memory. And I actually spoke yesterday with my brother, who is a who's a an ocean engineer, and he spent three years studying fluid dynamics. So the man knows a lot about water. Um, so uh, between the two of us, we're, we're trying to track down if there's any shred of empirical evidence that might support the idea that water can somehow remember the molecules that you stuck into it and shook and then diluted to the point where you're not, you don't even have any molecules anymore. You're just like taking them and shaking, shaking just water and somehow the water can remember that even diluted, you know, again, diluted down past the number of atoms that there are in the universe. Um, so uh, my, my preliminary take on that is it's a load of hogwash, um, but I'll, I'll give a more informed update next week. Right. Um, but some, I, some I, folks I, try I to invoke to, quantum I have physics. To, I have to admit oh, that sure. I've never heard of water memory before. I didn't know water. No, and, unless you've tried to find a scientific basis behind homeopathy, most people have probably never heard of water having memory. Now, water is a remarkable substance and you can, my brother was telling me you can't actually determine um, you know, using some mass spectrometry, you can determine something about the history of, of water, like where it came from when it was frozen, um, which is really remarkable, but, but that's not due to water having a memory. That's due to the trace elements that you find in the water that you're, you're detecting via mass spectrometry. And so there's nothing to detect in a homeopathic remedy. There's nothing there. And there hasn't been anything there for the past, I don't know how many dilutions, depending on how diluted it is. Um, so some people want to invoke quantum mechanics, um, I'm looking into that as well. Again, I think the answer to that is probably going to also be that it's bogus. Um, but uh, I'll give a I'll give a more you know solid verdict on that next week. Um, so so how does it work? Well, there's there's four basic options. Um, you know, so often when people are prescribed homeopathic remedies, and I remember this from my experience with a homeopath. So this may not be true in people who are dosing themselves at home, but there's usually some accompanying measures that go along with it. Um, you're not supposed to drink. You're not supposed to take other kinds of medications. You're not supposed to, um, you know, in some cases, you're, well, you're not supposed to smoke. In some cases, you're supposed to, you know, uh, also undergo some dietary changes. So if you're doing, taking home homeopathic remedies while you're also doing something else, it's very possible that that something else is actually causing the health improvement that you see. Um, another thing is that it could just be time combined with the body's ability to heal itself because a lot of um, complaints that are treated with homeopathic remedies like colds or, or um, even sinus infections are things that do spontaneously resolve um, over time. And there's really no way to know how much longer, you know, your disease would have progressed without the homeopathic remedy once you've taken it. You know, there's just, there's no way to be like, oh, it, it definitely shortened it by two days. How do you know? Um, uh, there could be contamination with actual pharmacological agents. Um, so, so some uh, homeopathic remedies have been tested and they do actually contain uh, relevant doses of, of some actual medicines in cases, in some cases, actual like pharmaceuticals, not, not the ingredients they're supposed to contain. Um, 
and I'm, I'm not counting correctly because I'm about to give you five reasons when I said I'd give you four. Um, the fourth reason is the placebo effect. And we'll talk a lot more about this next week because the placebo effect is fascinating. Um, and it can produce some really, really like mind blowing results. So this is when you, you think that there's going to be an effect. And so therefore there is an effect. And um, it, 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 there's just, yeah, some really mind blowing research on that, that, that I, looking forward to sharing next week. And then the fifth possible mechanism of its action is that it is actually, there is some occult vital force in it. So this is, I think, what is uh, effective in, in quite a bit of the homeopathic remedies. And um, the reason is that the most of the preparation of it, you know, that you're diluting and shaking, um, but you know, Hanneman himself indicated that you have to do it on a leather pad and you have to do a certain number of times. And like, there's a lot of ritualism to the way that this is done, you know, and I know a good priest who, who uh, knew a whole convent of, of, of nuns that was involved in preparing homeopathic dilutions and, and went about it even in this very ritualistic way, because that's the way you're supposed to do it without having any occult intentions, but it, it, it completely unglued the convent. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm not at liberty to, to say, you know, where it was, because of course you don't want to cause scandal, but, um, you know, I, I very much trust the source on this. So uh, there's there's definitely something um, occultic about its preparation. There's something occultic about its prescription and use as well. Um, a lot of homeopaths will actually use uh, methods of divination to prescribe um remedies, even including uh, pendulums and things like that. And so this is, this is, you know, kind of documented all over the place. I know you told me you did a search on homeopathy and the occult and you came up with all kinds of things. Um, you know, just, just not that Google is the arbiter of all knowledge. In fact, it's not, but, um, but just the fact that this information is so, so readily available at your fingertips should, should give one pause. But, um, you know, and I know, I know that there's a number of uh, the folks who, who have kind of argued, you know, with me at one point or another about this subject and said, well, Father Ripperger said it's okay. Um, and, and I dearly love Father Ripperger and I'm not going to contradict him. Um, but I'm going to point out what he says very often, which is that when you're dealing with spiritual warfare, precision is everything. And so if you're going to quote Father Ripperger, you better quote him precisely. And, um, you know, what, what, you know, he said to me when I asked him about it is that if there are, there, there's, you know, no uh, occult ritualistic preparation involved in the remedy, then there's no reason to necessarily eschew it from a religious perspective. But he also said that most of the stuff is tainted and that when he has a case, he actually asks the person, you know, where exactly, what exactly are you taking? Where exactly did it come from? Do you know exactly where it came from? And do you know exactly where the materials used in it came from? Because, and we have to do this actually with, with everything that we put in our bodies, unfortunately, in terms of like supplements or anything involved with healing, there's a lot of supplements on the market that are produced by companies that have very new age ways of doing things. Um, and, and so you really, before you buy anything, you know, even a, a herbal supplement or even sometimes vitamins, you really should look into the company that you're purchasing it, purchasing it from and just make sure there's nothing like kind of creepy or new agey about what they're doing. And if there is, you know, get your vitamin D somewhere else, <laughs> right. you know? So, um, so at the very minimum, you know, you should at least be investigating where this stuff is coming from, but, when you look at so the other principle that he gave me in terms of determining whether 
an alternative health treatment is legitimate for Catholics or not, is you, you have to look at the origin. Is the origin a cult? If the origin is a cult, this could be a problem. And then you also have to look at, does it have a biological mechanism whereby it could work? And if it doesn't, that's a problem. So again, let's, let's be precise. Father Ripperger doesn't say it's okay to use homeopathy. He says, if the remedy is completely free of any exposure to any kind of occult preparation, then there's no reason not to take it. But, you know, from my perspective, you'd probably better make darn sure that that's actually the case. So you mentioned like ritualism. Um, could you go through so, some aspects of that, the ritualistic preparations of these things, or maybe the ritualistic diagnosis that's done, the, the divination, which you mentioned. Sure, sure. So um, yeah, the preparation usually involves, so it doesn't just involve, um, you know, diluting and shaking, like you're supposed to shake a certain number of times. And in, in, in some cases, the instructions are given to, to tap the bottle on, on a glass pad or no, sorry, not a glass pad, a glass bottle on a leather pad, or to tap it on the heel of your hand. Like there's specific places that you're supposed to strike it. There's a specific number of times you're supposed to strike it. And we're getting into very much into ritualism there. Um, but also when you administer the medication to yourself, um, you're not supposed to touch it with your hands. You know, so you're supposed to just kind of, um, a lot of homeopathic remedies have caps designed such that you can kind of dispense them into the cap and then take the cap and then put them in your mouth. And you're supposed to put them under your tongue. You know, and there's a there's a, um, you know, a possible biological, you know, means for that, because, you know, so you're supposed to absorb things better sublingually than you would if you just had it, let it dissolve in your mouth. Um, but when you couple that with all the other ritualistic practices, it's just like one other thing of like, you know, you have to you have to shake it. This, you have to tap it this many times on this kind of thing, you know, dilute it this many times to the point where there's literally nothing left. This somehow makes it more energetic. And then you can't touch it because if you touch it, it disrupts the energy. And then you got to put it under your tongue because that's the best way to absorb. But, but like, you know, if that's really the... So you're not absorbing any molecules. So the, the biological excuse for putting it under your tongue of it being more absorbable there, it has nothing to do with what's actually in the remedy. So that is actually just, I'm just realizing this as I'm talking about it, that is actually just ritualism too. Like if you're not actually absorbing any molecules, there's zero reason to put this thing under your tongue um, unless it's some sort of ritual. So that's, uh, that's you know, kind of an overview of the ritual of, of rituals of preparation. Um, and then the rituals of diagnosis. Um, so in uh, some cases, practitioners um, diagnose using dreams. Uh, in a, you know, and I had asked you about this, you know, in the church's statement on this, and, and it, it is it is superstitious to um, attribute, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, connection with, with, um, you know, it, it's, it's superstitious to read into your dreams something about, you know, that, that gives you information about your life in, in this kind of, you know, profound way. So that's that's a weird practice that they use. And they use a lot of un, other non-related psychological phenomena as well when they're diagnosing because they, they have a lot of those things um, in the the they'll sometimes they'll push what they call a constitutional remedy. So, you know, you, Father, for example, might 
you know, respond really well to uh, pulsatilla or Ignatia or something like that, you know? So, so if you respond really well to Ignatia, like Ignatia is going to take care of all kinds of different things in your body. So it's not about like what it's actually responding to. It's just that that's your constitutional remedy. And so, you know, if your constitutional remedy is Ignatia, then you have these particular kinds of characteristics of your temperament and the way that you behave around people and whether you're like, you know, prone to being chilly or not, or, I mean, so, so, so these, um, you know, sort of physiological types actually almost correspond to zodiac signs. So, so then there's this whole other area of like constitutional remedies that are based on, on, you know, sort of astrological signs. Um, some other uh, practitioners use graphology or the study of handwriting to, to assign you a remedy. Some of them diagnosed using pendulums, um, uh, some use uh, electroacupuncture according to vol, which is the EAV method, um, where the patient holds a brass rod uh, or brass hand mask while the practitioner uses a brass tip probe and touches the probe to specific like acupuncture points and measures the level of resistance. And so it gives it sort of like veneer of, of um, sort of scienciness. But, uh, but a doctor um, who actually you know, studied homeopathy, was into homeopathy, bought a machine to do this, to test it with her patients, when she kind of had her eyes opened about the occult, the origins of homeopathy, started looking into all this stuff, and she realized that it was really just a cleverly disguised pendulum. Either there's no units on the readout, you know, in terms of like what it's actually measuring, and, and an answer above this many is a yes, and below this many is a no. It's just, you know, it's just kind of a... Um, uh, not a, it's not a reasonable way to diagnose people. Um, and then, um, I feel like there's one more that I'm forgetting. I'll tell you what, maybe you could also, um, cause we talked about it too. Some of the things that are being used, um, within these solutions that are diluted heavily mm -hmm. are things that we would not want to ingest like heavy right. Right. So, so, so the homeopath will claim that these medicines are safe because they are diluted so much, but, but, you know, it, it should, I think, give the, the discerning uh, a person pause to, to note that some of these remedies are made with things like arsenic, um, nightshade, lead, mercury, cadmium, poison ivy, um, potassium cyanide, strychnine, um, you know, and I, I didn't know what monkshood was. So I looked it up, but apparently like it, it can kill you, you know, in, in less than an hour and fairly low doses, you know, what's in terms it, of what's, what's what, it monkshood, it, it's a homeopathic name is aconite. So a lot of these names are disguised, uh, as, as Latin, Latin names. So arsenic is arsenicum album and, or antimonium arsenicate, um, which sounds a lot more like it. Um, nightshade is belladonna, um, uh, poison ivy is rust toxic, Toxicodendron. Um, the cyanide is calycyantum. Um, so I use the potassium dichromate. Potassium dichromate is like super toxic. It's used in all kinds of crazy uh, industrial grade stuff. Um, but it's it's calybic is its its uh, homeopathic name. I use that all the time for used to use that all the time for for sinus infections. Um, sometimes it would work and sometimes it wouldn't. <laughs> um, uh, so there's a lot of like really bad stuff in here. And, and I was, I found some scientific papers that, are, that uh, document that 
sometimes the stuff isn't actually diluted as much as it's supposed to be. So they're actually finding some of this deadly stuff in there. And then also if you use things at lower dilution, so if you use something, for example, at a 6X dilution, there is actually stuff in there. If you use like a 2X or a 1X or, or a 6X or even a 10X, um, you know, all the way down to 24X potentially, but probably, probably more like, I don't know, 20X. Um, there's still molecules in there. So if you use it, if you use more than a few doses of, uh, maybe more than one dose of mercury 6X or cadmium 6X, you, you end up with a toxic dose of mercury or a toxic dose of cadmium. Um, so this, this really isn't safe stuff to play around with just because, you know, some of it's so highly diluted that there's nothing there, but some of it's not highly diluted enough um, that you could actually, you know, have toxic effects and this has been documented in the literature too, that this has happened um, from some of these remedies that aren't, aren't as highly diluted. So, so one of the reasons that Hahnemann went into this infinitesimals thing was because, um, you know, he saw patients have adverse reactions to some of these things in, in higher doses so that he was, you know, trying to avoid the adverse reactions, make it safer, you know, and who doesn't want safer medicine, you know, especially given all the stuff that we just talked about, about the safety of vaccines, right. You know, and, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, pharmaceuticals that are unsafe, that are, that are very toxic, you know, so, so who wouldn't want something that promises no side effects, but the problem is it, it doesn't have no side effects because if there is a spiritual component to it, which I'm very firmly convinced there is, you know, and the average vial that you can get off the shelf, there's just some pretty serious side effects to it. And, and those are the kind of side effects that you're not, they're not, they're not going to show up after you take one dose. The devil's cleverer than that, you know, and, and it, this is my experience with like the, the Freemasonry stuff too. You know, I'm fourth or fifth generation that I don't always count correctly. Um, but, uh, you know, usually the effects of the Freemasonic generational curses don't show up until the third or fourth generation. Um, you know, and so the, their kids, they're not going to experience any effects unless they go directly against their, their promises. Their kids usually don't experience any effects. It's, it's you know, the grandkids and, and after that, that then start to have, you know, some serious problems in their life. And people are like, where are these, where are these problems coming from? You know, so, so what I noticed in my own life with the homeopathy was, you know, I was, I was experiencing these, these health benefits or these, you know, purported health benefits, but it was causing some really, really severe problems in other areas of my life. Um, and those just cleared up when, when I gave it up, you know, and, and it's hard to see that until you're willing to give it up. And, and, and this is another way where this kind of parallels with the whole, the whole evolution paradigm father, because I, I did not realize until the moment that I finally was able to accept that God created the world the way he did in six days. Um, the, the moment before I accepted that, I didn't actually believe in scriptural inerrancy, even though I thought I did. Like I, I thought that I, I took scripture literally. And when I finally was able to actually accept that fundamental tenet of the faith and believe that it literally changed everything about the way I look at, at scripture. Like I remember the last time I prayed the Psalms before I believed that. And the first time I prayed the Psalms after I believed that was the most wildly different experience I've ever had in my life. And I can say the same thing about throwing out homeopathy like the day before i i renounced it was very different from the day after i renounced it and and i don't want to go into you know too too many of those personal details as this is being recorded but you know i'm happy to talk about you know more of those aspects of the story with anybody anybody in the parish who'd, who'd be interested to find out but Good. but you know that that to me is kind of one of the most compelling reasons 
that, that I have, but I, I recognize that it's anecdotal, you know? And so as a scientist, mm. I don't want to offer that. It's like, well, this is why you should, should believe what I'm saying, but you know, it, it, it's, it's still, um, it's a powerfully transforming thing to let go of what you're attached to. That's not good for you. Well said. We're going to do a few questions if it's all right, but before we do, sure. I have a final question. All right. Is, is there good homeopathy? Can it be baptized, as they sometimes say? <laughs> or is um, it something which is damaged in the root to such an extent that it's irredeemable? Well, I would, um, I would say that, you know, I'm, I'm maybe not the proper person to make that designation um, because I like to stay in my lane in terms of, you know, uh, scientific evidence and things like that. But it would seem to me that, that the origin of homeopathy would violate the principle of integral good. Um, you know, that, that this thing can't be good if, if it, it came from a source that is so clearly bad. And, and it's not just, you know, Hanneman being a Freemason. It's the fact that, you know, he, he taught and, and his followers still that are faithful to his, you know, original work still teach that, that this stuff happens through an absolutely immaterial mechanism. And if it's happening through an immaterial mechanism and it's not of God, it is preternatural. Right. You know, and, and so can you make really, you know, infinitesimally diluted things without invoking curses over them? I'm sure you can, but you can't call that homeopathy. Mm, okay. Because it, 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 it violates, it, it goes against the integral principles of, of the foundation of this therapy. Mm -hmm. That was well said. And um, I, I, I did want to, before I took the questions, I finally remember who the woman was, who's the anthropologist, Margaret Mead, okay? So okay. <laughs> she studied the Samoans. Okay. The reason I brought that up, it, it, and also the book from Michael Jones, is Degenerate Moderns. Okay. And so this Hahnemann, who, who, who uh, uh, Pam mentions, who sort of is the sort of the founder of homeopathy, the fact that he had Freemasonic roots, and they loved the esoteric, they loved sort of Egypt and the, and the notions of the occult, hermetical arts, magical arts, and so forth. It, it just, it's just it's connected with it. Margaret Mead. She, you know, had an issues with uh, fidelity, issues with her own sort of um, issues of the Sixth and Ninth Commandments. And uh, so when she wrote about the Samoans, uh, she purposely sort of uh, put her mindset into her writings. Right. The Samoans were very faithful people to their wives, and, but, but she wanted to make them adulterous. So this, mm -hmm. was, this was the primitive way that people were. And I'm just, you know, going back to our roots. So, right. so and I think with this, it could be said also with this uh, individual who founded homeopathy, it has traces of what he believed in, and you know, where he came from. So thank you, Pam, once again. But next week you'll be here. But I think it will be more also. We'll talk more about the, the is there any possibility of a biological or chemical or even physical mechanism whereby homeopathy could work so that's that's the other piece that really we need to go into a little bit more before we can make kind of a final determination of 
you know, is this, is there any way to redeem this? You know, is there any way that this could be practiced uh, in a safe manner by Catholics and a safe and effective manner by Catholics? Well said. We'll end with a prayer in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son of the Holy Ghost. As, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Et cum spiritu tu. O benedic servitentis patris et hi. Et spiritus ancient scrivos et maniat semper. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Pam. Thank you, Fai.